So we are continuing looking at plain statements in the Bible on God's character. And those of you who saw my notice last week for this class know that we are studying on biblical atonement, that is atonement in the Bible. And that, of course, really is a study about the character of God. What kind of a God do we have? Uh, does he... Uh, does he save us willingly, or did he have to be persuaded to save us? Did he save us uh, from his wrath, or did he save us from sin? Did he save us uh, because someone paid the price for our salvation and therefore pacified his wrath? Just What is it that Jesus did? How did he save us? And what, has, what does that tell us about the character of God? We looked... Two weeks ago, at principles of interpretation in the Bible, I want to review quickly those principles. First of all, the words are not inspired. The, the thoughts are. The, the Holy Spirit works on the person who writes the message in his own words. And that means that all words in the Bible, like wrath, have to be interpreted by the Bible, not merely by a, a dictionary that simply reflects the human way of viewing that word. So no one passage of scripture also contains the truth about God. The Bible must be read as a whole, and we have to compare passage with passage to find the keys that interpret uh, things like God's wrath. Mm. Jesus is the fullest, most complete revelation of the Father's character. Any interpretation of scripture that contradicts this revelation is faulty. So, I, I, I do take what is called a Christological approach to Scripture because I don't believe that every text of Scripture is on the same exact level of understanding, on the same exact level of uh, progression of truth. And there is progression of truth in the Bible. One way to, to note that is to look at the story in 1 Samuel uh, 24.1, where God tempts David to number Israel and punishes him for it. The same story is repeated in the chron in Chronicles, First uh, Chronicles 21, verse 1, and there it says Satan tempted David to number Israel. You can't have it be both God and Satan unless you don't believe Satan is an opponent of God. If you believe Satan is an opponent of God, then there's no problem. But if you believe Satan is an, is, is an accuser, an adversary of God, then there's no way you can make those two fit together. Uh, what that shows to me is that the Bible is progressing. The people are progressing in the understanding unless God can shed more light. You think of Jesus' words to the disciples, I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them. Uh, so these are keys that help us to maybe understand the Bible and not put everything on a, on a unilateral level, a linear kind of approach, but more of a situational, contextual kind of approach. So these are the principles of biblical interpretation. And we will get to some more, I think, that I'll unpack as we move along. Now we're looking at plain statements on, in the Bible on God's character. And this comes out of my own personal journey that I related last week that before we tackle something as heavy as divine wrath, <laughs> we need to really look at who God is on the plain statements, the statements that state 
overarching concepts about God, such as God is love, for example. And we need to examine those statements and firmly believe them before we move on to the more difficult statements. Because it's only in light of the plain statements that we can handle the more difficult statements. So we stopped last week, I think, with the Old Testament, did we not? We Didn't we finish the Old Testament text? We didn't do Micah, okay? Yeah, I do remember doing Hosea 11. I'm a little fuzzy on Micah. So why don't we do the last two, Micah 6, 8. Now the context of this is, let's start with verse 1 actually, and I'm wondering if somebody is willing to read. Okay. From verse 1? Yes. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and the hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people Israel. He will prosecute them to the full extent of the law. O my people, what have I done to make you turn from me? Tell me why your patience is exhausted. Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from your slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia to Gilgal, when I, the Lord, did everything I could teach you about my faithfulness. What can we bring to the Lord to make up for what we've done? Should we bow before God with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and tens of thousands of rivers of olive oil? Would that please the Lord? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for the sins of our souls? Would that make him glad? No, O people, the Lord has already told you what is good, and this is what he requires to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I'm guessing that's either clear word or message. The New Living Translation. Oh, the New Living Translation. That's uh, more paraphrastic than I expected. (laughs) There's a lot of words there, not in the Hebrew. Uh, (laughs) 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 It's okay. They didn't do do any injustice. Uh, Notice that this text starts out with, uh, in my version, which is the uh, Common English Bible, arise, lay out the lawsuit before the mountains. This is a legal case that God is presenting to Israel, speaking legal speak. And... um, the Lord has a, a lawsuit against his people. And with Israel, he would argue. And notice how he argues. My people, what did I ever do to you? This sounds more like a defense. Like God is on trial and he's defending himself. It's a, it's a very different way of arguing one's case if one has a lawsuit against someone. Which, which suggests that God tends in lawsuits, as it were, tends to play the role of defendant. And that's the, the role that myself and another person who did a dissertation on the book of Job decided about the divine speeches in the book of Job, that they are a, a Yahweh's defense. So then notice what the people respond. Okay, we need to placate him. We need to buy him off. So what can we do to make up for what we've done? Uh, in, in the legal processes of the ancient Near East, uh, m- most societies practiced pecuniary compensation. You, you cut off somebody's arm, uh, you paid 
a certain amount of money. And then you were free. So such a compensation was, it was easy to fall into the trap of, well, you know, we'll just pay, pay the person back and go on our way. It was worth it to get their arm. <laughs> it's not a very healthy way of looking at uh, right and wrong and how we treat people. So what I would suggest is that this is how the cavalier attitude they have toward God. Okay, we blew it. What can we do to pay him off? Pay him back. So what does he want? Does he want yearling calves? Does he want rivers of oil? Maybe, maybe he wants just one animal. But no, maybe that's not enough. So maybe it's much. Rivers of oil. And, and, um, Thousands of rams. Or maybe he wants something really valuable. My firstborn child. You see. And this, this alludes to the practice of human sacrifice, which we know Israel did do. We actually have archaeological confirmation that that occurred. And there was an inscription found, uh, written by an Israelite that said, I gave my son as a mulk, meaning a child sacrifice. So, what does the what does the prophet respond with? What does the Lord want? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's all he wants. He doesn't want to be paid off, bought back. If that's what he wants, how does he get it? This is the atonement question. And I think we need to keep this verse in mind as a kind of framework from which to approach the concept of atonement. Okay, and then Micah 7, and it's verses 18 to 20. Uh, would someone else like to read? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of your possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in showing clemency. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and unswerving loyalty to Abraham, as you have sworn to our ancestors from the days of old. Okay, so God is a person of compassion. He is one who is faithful. And he he pardons iniquity. It doesn't say anything here about, I will pardon you if you do such and so. Can you think of a parallel in the New Testament where the person, all the person had to do was come home? Prodigal Prodigal son. (laughs) What else? Um, you mean they didn't, he didn't say, meet him at the door with, well, uh, first of all, I've got to take your older brother out behind the woodshed (laughs) and, and no. Nothing like that. In fact, the old brother didn't really want his younger brother home. So these are, these are clear, overarching perceptions about God. And, and we need to believe them because they're part of Scripture. And in light of them, we need to read the rest of Scripture. So now let's move to the New Testament. 1 John 4, 8 to 10, 16 to 19. And I'm wondering who would be willing to read. Okay, Adam. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. 19, you said? Um, 16 to 19. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. Those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Okay. This is, this is one of the most important statements in the entire Bible. Do you know anywhere where the Bible says God is wrath? Yeah, or God is mean. <laughs> uh, no, the Bible never makes such a statement for God. But it does say God is love. And, and John expresses this several times in this chapter. But of course, you know, our upbringing has a lot to do with how we see love. If we've been raised with conditional love, we see God's love as conditional. If we've been raised with to see love as uh, it's loving for me to condemn you, then we see love as potentially condemnatory. So it's important that we understand the biblical understanding of love. And that's for this reason that I have 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8 as the next passage. And who would like to read? Okay, Bianca. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. So here we have a description of love. Patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, doesn't brag, and it's not arrogant. The, I, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that love is foundationally humble. And that means whenever we uh, get dictatorial toward other people, try to control other people, uh, we're missing the point about what love is. If love is foundationally humble, it ha- takes a very different posture toward people and relationships with people. And I would like to propose to you that God is the most humble person in the universe. And that's not how we tend to see him. We tend to see him as standing on his authority, as exercising his sovereign will. And I'm not saying we around this table, but I'm talking about we as Christians. We tend to see God this way. And a, a real distortion of who he really is. Because God is love. Okay, uh, moving on. John 1, 1 to 3, and 14 and 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. But what has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Okay. And then 14 and 18. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. That's the glory right there, full of grace and truth. Okay, 18. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son, who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. I like your translation. Which is it? NRSV. NRSV, yeah. That's... One of my favorite Bibles, though I'm actually using the Common English Bible a little more frequently these days. Okay, so Jesus is the revelation of the Father. The one closest to the Father's heart has made him known. So what we see in the life of Jesus, when Jesus gets angry, we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? And, and how does that, how do we find that? How is that? interpreted in the New Testament. And we're going to find a specific verse when we study the wrath of God. This is, to me, this is what allows me, these texts allow me to have a Christological principle to apply to the Old Testament. John 10, 10 to 18. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give to them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him, and he isn't their shepherd. So the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in the sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life, so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down, and when I want to, and I'll take it up again. This is what my Father has commanded. Very clear statement. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came to give life. Uh, it's very, very sharp and clear. Okay, uh, John fourteen nine. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then? Show us the Father. You can imagine the disciples had been with Jesus for three and a half years, and they had seen all the good things he did. He was always doing good. He never he never went against his enemies and tried to harass them or or only once did he even berate them and it was done with tears in his voice, which completely changes the meaning of the passage. So they had seen this very gentle, loving savior person and the children weren't afraid of him. And everybody loved him, except what? The people that preferred to abuse others with religion. They hated him. So they no doubt 
were in their minds comparing Jesus with the stories they had been familiarized with in the Old Testament about God. And it just, there was something dissonant. They were used to the thunders of Sinai, the, the wrathful passages of the prophets. And this Jesus didn't seem to fit the image they had. And so it's out of that context, I believe, that Philip raises this question, you know, please show us the Father. And Jesus says, you've seen me, Philip. You've seen the Father. This is, this is the, one of the most sublime truths in the Bible. And it's something we need to hold in our minds as we pursue God's wrath. Okay, John 16, 25, 25 to 27. Would somebody else like to read? Okay. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now we come to the hermeneutic that I have suggested we use, of letting the plain statements help us to interpret the ones that are difficult. Jesus actually says, you know, I've talked to you before in metaphors and similes and parables, figures of speech. But I will tell you now plainly about my Father. There's no metaphor here. The Father does not need the Son to beg him to forgive us. And uh, unfortunately, I, I really believe a lot of Christians read this with, and, and somehow leave out the not. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. And they read, I am saying that I will re- ask the Father on your behalf. Because I think our tendency is to read the Bible through the lens we've been taught. And it's very important to understand that Jesus isn't up there pleading the Father to love us and forgive us. Okay, John 17, 3, next chapter. Notice there's a lot of plain statements in John. And this is my eternal, that they might know thee the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is life eternal. Whatever we believe about atonement, eternal life is knowing God. And Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That means that the purpose for Jesus' death and the purpose for his life on earth is that we might know the character of God and find eternal life thereby. Okay, verse 4. You want to go ahead and read that? I have glorified thee on the earth. I am finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Okay. Jesus announces that his work is finished when he's glorified the Father. Okay, uh, Romans 3 and verses 28, 31, and then 4, 5. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Okay, read... Um, Read actually 4 and 5 of chapter 4. When people work, their wages are not a gift, 
workers earn what they receive. But people are declared righteous because of their faith, not because of their work. So what Paul is saying is get rid of the economic model when looking at salvation. This is not something we earn. This is not economics. This is about relationship. This is about relationship of trust. And, of course, you may remember from last week, the word for, tr- for faith really is the word for trust. And trust is, is really what is more intended in terms of the Old Testament. So, Romans 6, 20 to 23. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you now are ashamed? The end of these things is death. But you, but now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does this text mean, these verses? What implications do they have for viewing God and particularly the nature of the plan of salvation and the nature of sin? Maybe I'm, I'm being too vague. You want to... It's just for the wages of sin is death. Right? Yeah. And that would support yeah. your opinion that, that sin is what ultimately yeah. destroys. Yes. Um, and if you look at... Verse 21, the end of those things is death. That means the natural, inevitable end is death. It's not something God does. So sin pays the wages of death, but God is gives the free gift of eternal life. So we're outside the economic model when we talk about the plan of salvation. So Jesus, to say that Jesus paid the price for our sins suggests that God is still honoring that old economic model when Paul is really trashing it. Okay. Uh, chapter 8. And we could read the whole chapter in benefit, but we'll start with verses 14 and 15 and then 26 and 27. And since I haven't read anything yet today, I'll go ahead and read it. All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. I think you know that the word Abba is colloquial, and it corresponds to our daddy or dad. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. If we really suffer with him, so that we can all so be glorified with him. Verse 20, jumping down to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit comes to our, help our weakness. We don't know what we should pray, but the Spirit himself pleads our case with unexpressed groans. The one who searches our hearts knows how the Spirit thinks because he pleads for the saints consistent with God's will. We know that God works all things together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 31. So what are we going to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Notice that word, gave him up for us all. 
He didn't kill him. He gave him up. Won't he also freely give us all things with him? Who will bring a charge against God's elect people? It is God who acquits them, who is going to convict them. It is Christ Jesus who died, even more who was raised, and who is also at God's right hand. It is God is Christ Jesus? It is Christ Jesus who also pleads our case for us. He obviously doesn't plead the Father because he's already on our side. Who will separate us from Christ's love? Will we be separated by trouble or distress or harassment or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we are being put to death all day long for your sake. We are treated like sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we win a sweeping victory through the one who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or anything that is created. There's a lot of other texts we could have gone through. I was just thinking we could have gone through Matthew 5, 45 to 48, where God sends rain on the just and on the unjust alike, sunshine, which indicates that God doesn't just love the children who are in his family. He loves everyone he created. So what do you think? Any questions? Any any comments? that you have on these passages. Maybe they're so plain and clear that we don't really have any questions or comments. Okay. In Romans 8.34, it says, Who then will condemn us? Will Jesus Christ know? For he is the one who died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of highest honor next to God, pleading for us. Who who is is that is that is all, I, yes it's different than the Greek um, in the in the Greek it is Christ Jesus who also pleads our case for us it doesn't say anything about before God or to God who who's yeah who who's he pleading to you, you remember when we discussed uh, Joshua the high priest and and the Satan standing ready to accuse him. Uh, and, and if you look at the court scenes in heaven, there's always other beings present. The whole universe. Jesus is pleading our cases for several reasons. To, to show what he has been able to do in us to the universe, to offset Satan's charges, counter them, and for our sakes. Because we are involved, as our case is being deliberated, Satan is working on our minds trying to get us to doubt God's love. And so Jesus pleads, in a sense, for us. Um, Look at Luke 15, the very familiar story that we talked about earlier today, the prodigal son, which I prefer to call the prodigal father, because there's more than one way to interpret prodigal lavish or wasteful the prodigal father is as lavish on his son as his son is on wasting his his uh, inheritance going to verse 25 now his older son was in the field coming in from the field he approached the house and heard music and dancing he called one of the servants and asked what was going on the servant replied your brother has arrived and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he received his son back safe and sound Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and entreated him, 
What do you have in your versions? Begged. Began to plead with him, begged. The Greek is he interceded with him. What Jesus does is take all of the familiar ways we see atonement and turn them upside down. The only death in the story is the fatted calf they kill to celebrate. Right? It's the only sacrifice. The only intercession that takes place in the story is with the reluctant older brother. And the only thing the son has to do is allow his father to forgive him and celebrate. I, I love this story because of it. To me, it is one of the clearest pictures of what God is, who God is, and plan of salvation, and what it really is. I I wrote a song one time on the sacrifices and the sacrifice of Jesus, and there's a line in there that says uh, that. We thought we were doing your, our part when your body we brought to the altar of our heart. And I, I really think that we have completely misunderstood the sacrificial system, completely misunderstood what it points to and what it tells us about God. That's one of the things we will be looking at when we deal with atonement. Well, we are done with this part of the journey. Next week, we will begin on God's wrath. Nothing like plunging from a very warm bath water (laughs) to an ice cold. Or maybe it's it's something hot. (laughs) But uh, we're going to take that plunge next week. And it's going to take us some time to unpack and to look at this and to think about it. But uh, when when we get too discouraged or too depressed... It's important that we keep these plain statements here. I will bring more copies next week so that all of you can have a copy. Uh, keep these plain statements with us. Oh, that's right. Next week we meet is the 7th. Uh, sorry. I was, next week we won't be meeting. <laughs> the 7th of December we will meet, and that's one church Sabbath. Okay, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father... We thank you that there are places in Scripture that are so clear, so plain, and so elevating that they're not controvertible. I pray that you will help us to believe these statements for all that they are worth, and that we will take them with us as we go into places in the Bible that are so easy to interpret through a human lens and through human ways of feeling and thinking and responding. Be with us in this journey in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.